Hey everyone, my name is John Nuxel, pastor of Christ Church of Amherst. Christ Church is in its seventh year as a strategic partner of Grace Chapel. We are so thankful to be a part of the Grace Chapel family and for the opportunity to extend grace into Southern New Hampshire. So if you consider yourself to be a, a, a part of Grace Chapel, thank you for the ways that you have humbly and generously extended ministry to make disciples in greater Boston. We're truly blessed. And that blessing is being passed on to those around us. Sometimes there's someone paying more attention to our words than we realize. Five years ago, my wife Amy and I bought our first home, a little two-story, two-and-a-half bedroom house in Merrimack, New Hampshire. In a short three years after that, we filled our home by adding two-and-a-half people. It can feel a little tight. Have you ever played that game Sardines? Sometimes I'll sit down for dinner and just look at everyone and ask out loud, where did all of these people come from? This is a lot of people. A couple of weeks ago, my daughter Leah was reminding me that when she grows up, she's going to be a mom, just like her mom, and her brother is going to be a dad, just like me. I said, well, that means I'm going to be a grandpa. She paused, a little confused. Uh, maybe she was trying to do the math in her head. How are we going to fit everyone in our house? Finally, she looked up to me and said, This is a lot of people. It turns out that kids listen to what we say. And as a parent who sometimes lets random things roll off his tongue for his own amusement, that's terrifying. Sometimes there's someone paying more attention to our words than we realize. With so many new ways to express our thoughts and feelings to the world, it has perhaps never been clear how much our words matter. We've all been on the receiving end of words that have had a lasting impact on our lives, some good and some not so good. Maybe a positive word from a teacher started you down a career path that you would have never imagined otherwise. And perhaps a negative word from a parent made you feel like nothing you could ever do would be good enough. Chances are we've all said a few words that we've regretted too. Uh, perhaps you said something in a fight with a spouse or a significant other that broke the relationship and created a difficult recovery. Maybe a secret slipped out in a conversation with a coworker. This spread across the office and ruined another person's reputation. Have you ever, in the heat of the moment, reached out for that keyboard in front of you to weigh in on some social media argument, believing that your keyboard had the power to change an opinion instead of heating up the conflict? How many people have we pushed away with a, with a harsh word or a or a poorly timed comment. For those of you joining us for the first time, we've been spending our summer leaning into an ancient letter from James, the brother of Jesus, to see how some of the first Christians relied on wisdom to help them navigate the challenges of living in community and living in the world. James's warnings about careless speech include some of his most famous illustrations. In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil uh, among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, 
and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Uh, of all of our body parts, the tongue is, is not only one of the smallest, but it's also one of the most dangerous, James tells us. It's untamable. It has the potential to corrupt our whole selves. It's lit on fire by the source of destruction and can destroy the course of, of our entire lives. Sticks and stones may break some bones, but the tongue, James would say, is full of poison. James will go on to tell us that, that it's inconsistent too. Words that praise God and curse people created in God's image come out of it at the same time. And in the world that James lived in, inconsistency was a sign that, that something was spoiled. Uh, who, drinks, who drinks from a cup of water that only has a little bit of mud in it? We get the point. And we can see it unfolding in the world we live in today, can't we? Words are powerful. They can change our world for the better or for the worse. But as we take one final step in our series, Deep and Wide, I wonder if that is just the beginning of it. Words can change our worlds. Uh, someone else's world can change our, someone else's words can change our lives. But what if our own words could change us too? What we're going to talk about is important. Chances are that most of us don't think about the need for change very often. When we, when we find ourselves in relational ruts with difficult people, friends, coworkers, or family members, we tend to think about how much we'd like it if they change. But the truth is, people don't always change to our liking. And sometimes, no matter the amount of maneuvering, uh, we just can't get on top of it. Engaging can often make things worse, and withdrawal doesn't move us forward. Finding better words in situations like these can help some. Our words can keep peace. Our words can, can get something off our chests. All of that feels better in the moment, but we can still walk away with this heavy feeling in our hearts that those relationships, they, they aren't right, and that we aren't right. We may put a bow on the situation, but we may also walk away from those situations carrying burdens of, of bitterness, discontent, envy, jealousy, or unforgiveness. James was clear about the power of the tongue to change our worlds and, and those around us. But as strange as it sounds, he may have also unleashed its potential to change what's inside of us as well. In James chapter 3, he begins with this. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Given what we read from James about the dangers of the tongue, that makes sense. If all it takes is a few words to do great damage, how much more caution should those who rely on words for a living exercise? 
Did you notice how James includes himself there? We who teach, he says. If I were to take a guess, the copy of James handed down to us wasn't his first draft. How easily could a a misunderstood word, a a cruel rebuke, or a self-glorifying statement have steered a young follower of Jesus away from the faith? But as strange as it sounds, is it possible that James' own words could have had an effect on himself? And maybe the cost of a poorly timed, cruel, or untrue word wasn't just the effect it had on its listeners. Maybe they, maybe they had an effect on the speaker too. Uh, James continues, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect able to keep their whole body in check. Wait, what? We all stumble in many ways. No argument there. But the one who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. The one who can control their mouth doesn't stumble at all. Don't get me wrong. It sounds like a really nice idea. If you can keep your mouth in check, all your other personal problems will go away. Your bad thoughts, your bad habits. Wouldn't that be nice? But as attractive as James's wisdom might be, something just doesn't seem to fit. Didn't Jesus say that out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks? Didn't the prophet Jeremiah say that the heart is deceitful above all things? Didn't Pastor Tom Van Antwerp just say a couple of weeks ago that what's on the inside will always work its way out? How can we fix the mouth if we don't fix the heart first? Out of the ordinary statements like James's here can stir up discomfort for those of us who are trying to make sense of a Bible that we believe makes sense. But I love verses like these because they they invite me to pause rethink and dig a little bit deeper for an answer that I I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Does James really think our own words have the power to shape us? Well, it looks like he does. James continues, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by by a small spark. Like a bit in the mouth of a horse, steers the whole animal, or like the rudder of a ship powers it against strong waves, the tongue, though small, can direct the whole body. But James isn't just talking about our physical bodies. He's talking about our whole selves, our thoughts, and our emotions, too. Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman can trace the moment he knew he wanted to study people. He was a young Jewish boy living in Nazi Germany. It was past curfew, and he was trying to hide the star under his coat when a Nazi soldier approached him, showed him a picture of a young boy, scooped him up in a giant hug, 
and sent the young Kahneman on his way home with some cash. He explained, I went home more certain than ever that, that my mother was right. People were endlessly complicated and interesting. Kahneman's work exposed cognitive biases inherent in the human mind. He discovered that the human mind has two systems of thinking. System one thinking performs automatic calculations like swatting a mosquito, driving down the road, recognizing stereotypes. Your mind cannot help but come up with the solution when I say one plus one equals, you answered it, didn't you? Well, unlike the involuntary responses of system one, system two thinking requires one to pay attention. It's harder on the body, but it, but it gives, gives a person the ability to consider options before acting, to employ self-control and make rational decisions. Now, both systems are important and necessary. System one is a survival mechanism that makes life more manageable by looking for easily recognizable patterns. And we tend to gravitate towards system one thinking when we face complex problems because it's easier. Yet staying in system one thinking can keep us from better answers to difficult questions. It can cause us to dismiss different people because of mental shortcuts. It can allow our likes and dislikes to control our beliefs about the world. Let's make this a little bit more personal. System one thinking is what's at play when we say, idiot, underneath our breaths, after a car has cut us off in traffic. System one thinking is what's at work in conflicts with our significant others when we defensively respond with that, you always do that. System one thinking is in control when a coworker just got a promotion and upon hearing the news, we let something negative about them slip instead of celebrating their success. I think James knew something about this. We've joked a lot in our sermon series about James's relationship to Jesus, his brother. Hey, life couldn't have been easy growing up when your mother is always treating your older brother like he's the son of God. Last week, Pastor Brian read from James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. We don't know what James was feeling when he was writing this letter. All the scripture tells us about his personal background is that he and his brothers were at one time not supportive of Jesus' ministry, nor did they believe him. But if you'll allow for a bit of a sanctified imagination, Perhaps when James wrote those words, he felt the pain of a bitter memory of a time when he saw his brother Jesus rise to prominence and felt the jealousy of all the attention he was getting. And maybe he poured, maybe he poured his time and attention into learning the scriptures so that he could achieve the same kind of fame. Can you imagine being the sibling of someone famous? How would it feel to be simply known as the brother of Tom Hanks? or the sister of Tom Brady. No Brady Bunch there. The thing that you'd be known for the most was something someone else in your family did. Uh, perhaps a part of you would want to celebrate that, but chances are there's also a part of you that would spite it. Your identity would always be suppressed under the success of someone you grew up with. Bitterness, envy, 
selfish ambition. If that was James's experience growing up, it's a long way from the James we find in the letter who described himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How did he get there? How did James experience this drastic change of heart? One of the great mysteries of the faith is the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul said, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Change sometimes comes fast. It sometimes comes slow. But that inner righteousness that can touch the most personal parts of our lives is a work of the Holy Spirit received by faith. It impacts the way that we feel about people who might disagree with us or can even be hostile toward us. The way we react when someone takes advantage of us. The way we stereotype people who are different from us. And the way that we draw conclusions about people we don't like. The working Christian life is always dependent on faith and a trust in the Holy Spirit for change and inner righteousness. But what if there was something we could do to prime the pump? Could our words be a part of that? During the pandemic, my children became victims of a popular show called Coco Melon. It's an animated TV show following little baby JJ. Now, if you haven't heard of Coco Melon, there are two things that you need to know. First, everything is sung. There is no straight dialogue. The other thing that you need to know is parents, they absolutely hate it. Now, if you think that I'm just a bitter dad longing for the veggie tales of yesteryear, you have to understand it's not that I don't appreciate the lessons or the parenting break. It's the songs. They stick in your head, and they're unrelenting. A half an hour of Coco Melon is 12 hours of nursery rhymes pounding on your inner soundtrack. If the music we play around us can take such a prominent place inside of us, could the words that come from our mouths do the same? It turns out that some of the heroes of the faith found encouragement from self-talk. Why are you downcast? David asked his soul in Psalm 42.11. Awake, my soul, David said again. Find rest in God, my soul, he continues. And spoken words to God can have a similar effect. As valuable and helpful as silent prayer can be, chances are it wasn't common in the world Jesus lived in. When Jesus prayed privately in the Garden of Gethsemane, he did not pray within himself. The writers tell us that he moved further away from the disciples so as not to be heard. Just the other week, I tried it on for myself. After reading the scripture, I entered into a time of silent prayer. But as is often the case, my my mind immediately started moving through the daily checklist, and it it just made it impossible to focus. I'll admit it, it felt a little weird at first. But as I let the thoughts of my heart become words on my lips, I was surprised at how encouraging it became. It helped me to break through the distraction and be in the kind of headspace that I wanted to be to connect with God. If self-talk and spoken prayer can bring some encouragement 
Could the words we use in relationships do the same? What if we replaced bitter, envious, defensive, reactionary words with words that were humble, joyful, grateful, and that celebrated other people instead? Could our words prime the pump of our faith for the Holy Spirit to bring the interchange we need when we struggle with a spouse, a coworker, a sibling, or a friend? That's what James is getting at here. Carefully chosen words have the power to shape our hearts. Everything that Jesus said about the heart is true. What Pastor Tom said about the heart is true. What's on the inside will always work its way out. Words reveal what's in the heart, but words can shape what's in the heart too. Perhaps you're a mom trying to navigate the teenage years. Maybe you're a student wrestling what life and faith look like among your peers in complicated times. Or perhaps you're an employee at a job where you feel like you have been overlooked. Wherever you're at or whatever season you're in, choosing your words can help you navigate difficult situations and take you a step toward the vision God has for your perfect self. And to put this into practice, I thought of three things that might help to take good words to heart. First, slow down. It was the early 2000s and I was a bit of a late night junkie. It was before some of the late night hosts were overtly political, but you still knew the late night hosts were political. So it caught my attention when, when one show hosted a political commentator on the other side. The conversation was cordial, but, but it was a bit on edge. The guest pressed the host with a gotcha question. How could he be for this one thing and that was good and, and against this other thing? It looked as though the host was cornered. You could feel the tension. At first, the host dodged the question. The guest pressed again and pointed out the host's unwillingness to answer. For some reason, the, host, the host's simple response has stood out to me ever since. I just like to think. It was a non-answer on the most public stage, and, and maybe some perceived it as a cop-out. But it was an important answer. That's because in the heat of the moment, when it might be easy to respond quickly, we may not be in the best space to respond well. I'm going to let you in on a secret. And that pretty much means I'm not going to be able to use my secret anymore. But if you receive an email from me at exactly 8 a.m., that probably means it's a scheduled email. And that could mean one of two things. Either I was up so embarrassingly late the night before that I don't want you to know about it, or the email was hard to write and it required some thinking and rethinking on my part. Perhaps I wrote it and scheduled it so that I could return to it again and uh, drop a line or write something differently. There have been emails I have scratched entirely because I didn't feel right after a second look. Maybe it felt too prideful. Maybe it didn't show enough empathy. But when I've rewritten those emails and got a little closer to where they need to be, my heart has gotten a little closer to where it needs to be too. Second, look within. What is your first reaction to a situation and where is that reaction coming from? Is it coming from a place of bitterness, envy, or jealousy? 
How do you feel about the person you are speaking to? Do you dislike them because they have certain advantages? Are you having trouble forgiving them because, because of something that they've done? The road to humility and forgiveness can be a long one. Sometimes when we think we've forgiven, we have a long way to go. Sometimes, we, sometimes when we think certain things don't matter to us, we find that they really do. And that's okay. That's a healthy part of the process. We can only move forward when we know where we're coming from. Lastly, choose better. Choose words or choose not to speak in ways that are consistent with the person that you want to be. Do you tend to blame others when mistakes are made on the job or at home? Speak mercifully. Do you complain when something doesn't go your way? Show gratitude. Is your inclination to wonder what contribution a person made to their own problems? Express empathy. Do you tend to look down on people for their employment, education, background, or political affiliation? Express humility. Is your inclination to talk about your own successes when you hear about the successes of others? Celebrate people. That last one especially hits home. It's the first part of our mission statement at Christ Church of Amherst. When our leaders sat down to envision the, our course for the future, we wanted to find a word that would help us take a beautiful posture toward our friends and community. We actually drew our inspiration from this very passage. James tells us that with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. James is saying that there is a difference in how some people treat God and treat people that are consistent with, or that are inconsistent with Christian character. Now, praise is a heavy word. Jesus pushed back against the devil during his time in the desert, recalling the command to worship God alone. So we figured that that must not be what James meant here. But to celebrate people, that seemed to capture James's intent a little better. And where love can sometimes be seen as passive, celebrate calls us to be more than spectators. It asks something of us and inspires us to take a positive posture towards those around us, even those who are different or might oppose us. In his book, Enemies of the Heart, Andy Stanley shares how he's tried to put something similar into practice at his son's baseball games. He wants his kids to do well and wants them to be better than the pitchers on the opposing team. But after games his kids have lost, he always finds the pitchers on the other team, and sometimes the parents too, to congratulate them on their win. He expands on this further in his chapter on jealousy. Expressing the truth helps to free you from the emotional bondage that's such an integral part of jealousy. When you walk up to the guy who got your promotion and say, congratulations, you're refusing to allow dangerous emotions to control your behavior. You're protecting your heart. Don't wait until you feel like celebrating. Celebrate until you feel like it. Rid your heart of the destructive forces of jealousy. Refuse to be taken prisoner by emotions that don't reflect reality. You know, that's an area I'm looking forward to growing more into. As a pastor, it's not uncommon to hear a famous pastor come up in passing conversation. 
Maybe it's the part of me that's cynical of fame, or, or maybe it's the realist part of me that tends to look at imperfections instead of the best side of things. But sometimes my first reaction is to bring them down a notch. Yeah, but do you know what they said about this? Or maybe it's a compliment mixed with a slight. Ah, they're really good communicators, but I'm not sure that I'd go to them for my Bible teaching. Of course, we have a responsibility to encourage people toward better teaching when people are in danger of teaching that could seriously damage their faith. Jesus did that. We should do that too. But from my experience, most of the time I do something like that, it's coming out of a different place. And when those words slip out of my mouth, it's almost like I could taste them after I do. It's a bad taste that lingers. Ugh. Did that just come out of me? But when I'm able to celebrate their success and enjoin in expressing gratefulness for the good their ministry brings without mixing it with something else, it leaves me with the opposite taste, a good and beautiful taste that nourishes me within. When we choose better words, whether that's humble words, honoring words, grateful words or forgiving words, we can change our worlds for the better. But we also have the power to change our hearts. And that's liberating because it turns out that what may be holding us back from fully enjoying God's perfect vision for us is not the relationships that come our way, but something inside of us. And the spoken word has the power to steer us a better way. So if you're struggling with your spouse, what would it look like to slow down instead of falling into the blame game? Could a little space give you room for some perspective or insight that you never considered before? Maybe you find yourself confronted by the rise of a coworker. Maybe someone who got a promotion that you felt you deserved or someone younger who's been with the company less time. Could looking within to identify and name feelings of envy or jealousy give you the power to overcome and to experience humility and even gratefulness instead? Or perhaps you find yourself struggling to forgive a close friend for abandoning you during a season of life when you could have really used their support. Maybe there are days it feels like you've moved on. And maybe there are other days where resentment clouds your thoughts and feelings. Could saying, I forgive you, and saying it out loud, bring our hearts one step closer to letting go of the thoughts and feelings that seem to never let go of us. Carefully chosen words have the power to shape our hearts. The heart can appear untamable. It can feel unchangeable. But God has given us words to help steer our hearts against powerful waves of thoughts and emotions that want to push us in another direction. If a bit in the mouth of a horse can guide the whole horse, and if a tiny rudder can steer a giant ship, beautiful words can change us. And as those words draw us closer to God's perfect vision for our lives, we can draw closer to Him, become more like Him, and be better for the world because of it. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this powerful word from James. May you take the words of our mouths and make them pleasing to you so that they may shape our hearts for your good, for your glory, and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.